Among those in Britain who enjoy hiking and rock climbing, there is a magazine called Trail Magazine that is very popular. Uh, the February 2004 issue provided directions for climbers who were descending Britain's highest peak, Ben Nevis. The summit is 4,409 feet, and coming down this summit, particularly in bad weather, can be tricky. Trail offered detailed instructions for the descent, but the instructions were wrong. Roger Wilde of the Mountaineering Council of Scotland caught the error and he immediately contacted the magazine to point it out. Trail had admitted that they had made a big mistake. They had somehow left an important piece of the instructions out. And it's a good thing that no one followed their plan because in poor visibility, climbers would have walked off a cliff into Gardilu Goli. The 1,000-foot drop is one of the longest in Britain. And boy, just think, a little sentence missing, and it could have led to catastrophe. I think of that in parallel to many of the leadership works that are being written today. You see, in the landscape of leadership and the books that are being written on leadership, they're telling us how to be a leader and what leadership entails. But often as you read the book, there is a sentence missing. A, put, uh, a crucial piece of advice that if you would miss out on that, it could lead to catastrophe in your leadership. What is that sentence? The sentence is, leadership is sacrifice. Yes, leadership is sacrifice. And not only is this crucial sentence missing, but there is another sentence that has been inserted in its place. Leadership is privilege. The prevailing idea is that leadership is an ascent to personal privilege and not a descent into serving other people. David Mathis writes in his article, True Leadership is Sacrifice, Not Privilege. From before we can ever remember, we have been indoctrinated at nearly every turn with the idea that being a leader means getting the gold star. Leadership is a form of recognition, a kind of accomplishment, the path to privilege. Being declared a leader is like winning an award or being identified among the gifted. The prevailing idea, leadership means privilege, and no generation has considered itself more entitled or more privileged than our own. And so this morning, as we look at God's word, Nehemiah's book on leadership will provide us with some clarity on what true leadership entails. Uh, to do this, uh, he jumps into uh, an accounting of the next 12 years of his leadership. It's very interesting. This accounting is right next to what we just read last week, where the Jewish nobles had been taking advantage of the people in order to prosper themselves. So now Nehemiah is going to make a big point and he's going to use himself as an example. He's going to say to us that leadership is sacrifice, not privilege. So if you would, turn your Bibles with me to Nehemiah 5. We'll pick up at verse 14. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, you can turn your Bible to, uh, you can grab a blue Bible in the chair in front of you and turn it to page 401. And you'll be caught up with us. Now, 
While you're turning there, as we explore this text this morning, I'm going to be asking a couple of questions of the text, and then we're going to look at the text and see what it has to offer to us. The first question is, should Christians pursue success, promotion, uh, you could even say advancement, and leadership uh, positions in general? Let's pick up verse 14, and we'll read that one verse. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. I want you to notice that there in verse 14 that Nehemiah embraces promotion. Remember, he started off as a cupbearer. He went on to be a wall builder. And now we learn that he is the governor of the land. He was appointed to this position and he held the position for 12 years. And I want you to understand as well that this position was very prominent. There was no higher position in the land at this time. And Nehemiah was called to do it and he embraced promotion. Think about that with regard to your life. What would you do next week if you were called into the office and asked to take on a responsibility that was greater than the one that you had right now? What if your business starts flourishing? You've been putting in the blood, sweat, and tears, and suddenly it seems like you're turning a corner and the business is taking off. Or what if you were offered a big promotion? Or should you step into a political career? Should I pursue advancement as a Christian? Christians have struggled with these questions for different reasons. I think there's a couple of factors at play. We might struggle with it because of the fear of failure. If I was to step into a position of great responsibility, could I manage it? Could I handle it? And I think that's a natural response. Some of us wonder that if we stepped into a position of privilege, would I mishandle myself? There's the fear that the position would cause you to compromise your moral standards. And some Christians wonder if it's right for a person to take on advancement in this life. I would submit to you that all three of these reasons for not taking advancement is not a very good reason to reject it. Think of a psalm of Asaph. When, he was, when I think of this question of advancement and promotion, Asaph was speaking of who, sheds, or who ultimately is behind any advancement or promotion. It's Psalm 75, verses 5 through 7. He says, Do not be so certain you have won. Do not speak with your head held so high. For victory does not come from the east or west or from the wilderness. For God is the judge. He brings one down and he exalts another. Now Asaph is reminding us that God is ultimately the one behind any exaltation. That Hebrew word for exaltation carries with it the idea of promotion or, or being made great in this life. Now on the one hand you need to think to yourself, okay, if I receive a promotion, and I'm filtering this through the lens of God's word, I shouldn't start taking out my cell phone and 
making selfies of myself and posting it on Facebook as if I somehow internally involved into this position. Who provides the success? It comes to us from the sovereign hand of God. But on the other side of the coin, who provides the success? It comes to us from the sovereign hand of God. It's not wrong to pursue advancement. What can God do through wholly surrendered Christians in positions of prominence? What if more Christians felt called into the political arena, into administrative leadership over school systems, into executive positions in business, into medical degrees, law degrees, and so on and so forth? What can God do through a Christian who is wholly surrendered unto his will in stepping into these positions? And I would submit to you the answer is much. Joseph was a slave who God elevated to be second only to Pharaoh. His exaltation resulted in the saving of many lives. Esther was a Jewish exile who was exalted into the position of queen of Persia. Her exaltation saved the Jewish people from the hatred of Haman. Leadership principle, or let's, let's look at a proverb first and I'll quote that to you. Proverbs 29.2. This is an important proverb. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. Do you see Solomon's point here? Do you see what can happen when leaders lead where they are as Christian leaders? Um, if God has placed you in a leadership position and, and you righteously conduct yourself in that leadership position, there is a trickle-down effect that happens to the people that are underneath you. The people below you rejoice. Your godly position of prominence results in blessing for them. And I would submit to you that the higher up a person goes in the leadership chain, the more people that are affected with the blessing. So here's that leadership principle. Number 18, leaders evaluate advancement opportunities in terms of what God can do through them. Well, fathers, as you contemplate this, some of you are right in that process of deciding what you're going to do with your career, where you're heading, what God can do in and through you. I want to challenge you with two considerations. First, I want you to ask the question, how will this affect my family? Don't make a decision just for the sake of money or advancement. Consider your family in that process. Will this cause me to be largely absent from their life? Is that worth it? I'd submit to you that it didn't play out so well for King David. Another question is how will this affect my involvement in my local church and my mission? Think through those things as you consider promotion. Let's ask another question of the text. How should leaders handle privilege if the Lord gives it? So remember the principle, leadership is sacrifice, not privilege. Many of the leadership books are being written, uh, missing that sentence, and leaders have walked off the cliff and fallen a thousand feet into Gardy Lou Goley. 
I want you to hear two quotes. The first is from Thomas Carlyle, a Scottish historian. He once wrote, Adversity is hard on a man, but for one man, who can stand prosperity? There are a hundred that will stand adversity. Charles Swindoll makes a similar point. He says, Few people can live in the lap of luxury and maintain their spiritual, emotional, and moral equilibrium. Sudden elevation often disturbs balance, which leads to pride and a sense of self-sufficiency, and then a fall. It's ironic, but more of us can hang tough through a demotion than through a promotion. And it is at this kind or this level, a godly leader shows himself or herself strong. The right kind of leaders, when promoted, know how to handle that honor. So let's check back in with Nehemiah. We'll see how he uh, responds to the pressure of promotion. Verse 14, second part. Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials besides them who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Notice how Nehemiah handles privilege. First, he never abused his privilege. You'll see that in verse 15. He details the, the practices or habits of his predecessors, and he doesn't give us every detail, but one thing we notice here is that they are patting their pockets on the people. They have set up some kind of profit-sharing scheme for their servants when they go out and they're collecting the money and the produce from the people of Israel. And you can imagine how insidious of a system this would be. The more the servants collect for the governor's coffers, the more they get to take home. Nehemiah looks at this practice and he says, it's wrong. This isn't going to lead to the flourishing of people. But maybe you have been involved in some uh, change of leadership and you've observed how difficult it can be to change a corrupt system. To go in and to turn people away from what is wrong, the pressure if you step into a corrupt system and try to um, implement a change. I recently read the account of a businessman he was promoted to a new position in his company, and he quickly discovered that the, the former policies of his predecessor were unethical. They were unfair and illegal. As he began to reform the system, he faced considerable backlash from the people that were working underneath him. His life was threatened on more than one occasion. His wife was called multiple times, receiving obscene phone calls. Uh, 
ugly, vicious, untrue rumors were spread throughout the company of this man. He became a hated man because he dismantled the unethical policies of this company. But what happens when you hang true? Well, over time, he endured and he cleaned up the mess. And when he had left that company for a higher promotion of advancement, he left behind him an ethical institution. That's how Christians should be. When we step into a place of prominence, we leave that place better than when we had showed up first. I think of Nehemiah's reason for why he hangs tough amid the change. Look at what he says in verse 15. I did so because of the fear of God. Nehemiah recognizes that there is no higher authority. God is infinitely higher in authority than any authority that resides here on this earth. It doesn't matter how high up the chain you climb. It doesn't matter if you become the president of the United States of America. You're always underneath an authority. And he has never placed you in a position of authority for abuse. He places you in that position of authority so that the people would rejoice. Proverbs 29.2. And so that his name would be exalted. Notice another way that Nehemiah handled his privilege. Look at verse 14. I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. Verse 16. We acquired no land. Verse 18. I did not demand the food allowance of the governor. Nehemiah gave up certain rights for the sake of others. Is there something wrong with the fringe benefits of a job? Would it be wrong for Nehemiah to have an expense account, a company camel, some stocks in the Judean countryside? I would say to you, absolutely not. There's nothing wrong with that. But why does he reject those rights. Well, probably the most important leadership principle of all, principle 19. Leaders are servants, and I think you should add after that, first. Leaders are servants first. Leadership is sacrifice, not privilege. Think of that story in Mark 9 when the disciples are walking along with Jesus and they're in a little bit of a scuffle. He's walking ahead of them and looking back and he's seeing arms waving wildly and tempers flaring and Peter's probably shoving John a little bit. And they come to the house at Capernaum and Jesus challenges them with a question, what were you discussing on the way? Basically, you guys seem pretty animated back there. I bet you guys were arguing over how we could better help people. Remember, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Or, or maybe the two greatest commandments. You were getting very intense over those, right? Love God, love others. What were you passionately discussing back there? And he's met with silence. Matthew and James won't even make eye contact with him. 
Peter's humming, rise and shine, as he's watching the dust kick up from the ground as he kicks his foot. Because they weren't talking about the love of God. No, they were having an argument over who is greatest. Peter's back there bragging. Do you remember who was the only disciple to step off the boat? It was me. And John quickly fires back, Peter, I don't think I would brag over that one, buddy. You made it about four feet and then you sank and you cried for help. And back and forth and back and forth. And so Jesus sits them down and he begins to teach on the real meaning of leadership. Mark chapter 9, verse 31. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. In a parallel passage, Matthew 20, John and James send mommy in to ask for a promotion. And Jesus gives this response to the disciples when they become indignant over the same problem. Who is greatest? He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. You see these things in practice. You hate these things. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for men. Now, the gospel of Jesus Christ, at the bedrock of it, is servant leadership. Had Jesus not been a servant leader, we wouldn't be in a church today celebrating the gospel. Robert Greenleaf wrote, the servant leader is servant first. It begins with the natural feeling that one wants to serve, to serve first. Then conscious choice brings one to aspire to lead. He or she is sharply different from the person who is leader first. Perhaps they are leader first because of the need to assuage an unusual power drive or to acquire material possessions. He continues, the difference manifests itself in the care taken by the servant first to make sure that other people's highest priority needs are being served. The best test and difficult to administer is this. Do those served grow as persons? Do they, while being served, become healthier, wiser, freer, more autonomous, more likely themselves to become servants? And what is the effect on the least privileged in society? Will they benefit? Or at least, will they not be further deprived? Leadership is servanthood. It is sacrifice, not privilege. I know of a pastor who on multiple occasions has foregone a salary increase because he's looking at the structure of the budget and he knew that if he was to take a salary increase, one or more of his staff would not be able to. Now, this was not an easy call for him. He's not sitting on a mountain of money that he can just throw about liberally as he pleases. It was a sacrifice. But he knows his staff. He knows the state of their finances, and he knows that some of them just need more money in order to make bills. And I'll tell you, he's never made a production about it either. I would say over the past 15 years, he has done this on multiple occasions. 
And I bet you not one of his staff realizes that he ever did this for them. That's servant leadership. Though it is not a normal expectation that a leader would give up their rights, sometimes it is the right thing to do. And it truly tests your motives. The third thing we see is that we are to be generous. Nehemiah not only gives up his rights, but he's generous with what he has. He's obviously a very wealthy man. When you look at the Bible, there's some teaching out there that would almost present itself to say that wealth is bad. Being rich is wrong. But that's not the case. That's not what the scriptures teach. It's not wrong to have things. It's wrong to let things have a hold on you. And let me just say this. You don't have to be rich to be in that state. Look at his hospitality bill. It says in verses 17 and 18 that he fed 150 Jews daily at his table. So this is men and officials, part of his staff. He also regularly entertained dignitaries from the surrounding nations. I mean, just imagine all the food that that would require for a person to feed all those people. You don't even really have to imagine, do you? He tells us an ox, six sheep, all kinds of birds, every 10 days, all kinds of different wine. And notice what he says here. What was prepared was at my own expense. Nehemiah was a generous leader. He was so committed to the work of God that he would invest his own resources to see the work of God furthered. He didn't necessarily sit on any of his resources, did he? He put them to work. And I believe that there's a good principle here for us. If we want to be those types of leaders, we put our resources to to work. I want to ask you a financial question. Everyone loves financial questions, don't they? Do you have, and you don't have to answer this out loud, by the way. Just think on it. Do you have a, a portion of your budget designated giving? Maybe the better question before I ask that question is, do you have a budget? You see, I think that when you look at the statistics, American Christians are not very generous when it comes to giving. It's just true. I don't think it's necessarily because we're stingy. I think it might have something to do with the fact that we're not good stewards. We want to give, but we don't set up our life or plan in order to be able to give. Remember that principle, if you don't have a plan, you're planning to what? Fail. So on January 1st, if you sit down and you write out that budget, you're setting yourself up for success. Um, I'll say this to you. If you've ever struggled with stewardship, financial peace is a great class. And we offer it usually once a year here at Osterville Baptist, either in the fall or in the spring. I would encourage you to sign up for that class. Now let's go back to the question, all right? I got a little distracted there. Do you have a portion of your budget that is set aside for giving? Do you have a portion that is designated to giving to the church, a portion that's designated for spontaneous giving? Again, if that makes its way into your budget on January 1st, you're not going to struggle through the year to be generous. It'll be a part of what you do, your framework. I challenge you to do that. I challenge you to go home today even, pull out the book, blow the dust off the cover, ask yourself the question, am I being generous? 
Am I designating a portion of my money to advance God's work and to be spontaneously generous towards people? The Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 9. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves what? A cheerful giver. You will be enriched in every way if you are generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Leadership is sacrifice, not privilege. Let's consider one last question. I'm going to speed up here because we're getting steamy and hot. What should primarily motivate a leader to sacrifice for others? What's your motivation? Why sacrifice? Why be a servant? Why be generous? Some of the leadership books actually piggyback off of the Christian principles, and they say you should be a servant leader because that will help you to gain influence over people so that you can get what you want. That's called manipulation, by the way. (laughs) And they're still operating out of privilege. Nehemiah has two. First, the fear of God. Verse 15. I did so because of the fear of God. Rightly defined, the fear of God means to stand in awe of God for who he is and what he has done. It's a healthy recognition that we will give an account to him one day. Do you have an internal compulsion to see God be glorified? Do you do what you do so that God will be at center stage, even if that means that you occupy the backstage? Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Look at it, verse 19. Nehemiah says, Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. I was just yesterday having a breakfast with a, a wonderful Christian man from North Carolina Uh, We had met over a year and a half ago. And we'd made this connection and had kept contact, uh, sending prayer requests. It's amazing when you think about it. Um, He's felt called since we have met to be in prayer for this church. Isn't that awesome how God works? People praying all over the place for this context, even when they don't occupy this context. He said a remarkable statement to me at breakfast. He said, you know, every night I lay my head down and I take inventory of my day and I ask God, Lord, were you pleased with me today? Did I offer up my life for the sake of others? Did I operate in such a way that I brought pleasure to you in the way that I lived? That there is a Nehemiah-like leader. He's leading where he is He's doing it because he fears God. Second, motivation, compassion for people. Verse 18. For all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. For 12 years, he pays out of pocket. He did not charge the people because he knew that the people didn't have two pennies to rub together. He was a servant to them because he was compassionate towards them. 
Warren Wiersbe, in his book on being a servant of God, makes the point that ministry is about meeting human needs. There's typically different responses that we can have to human needs. One of those, we might be blind to them, and we just go on living our lives. Another is that we might take advantage of those needs to benefit ourselves, or we might know about them and just simply do nothing. Wiersbe writes, the only way for the servant of God to respond is to ask, Lord, what would you have me do? We can't do everything, but we can do something. And we must do it as Jesus would so that he might be glorified. That really sets the context, doesn't it? I can't take care of every need but I can take care of some. I can lead where I am. I can operate out of the principles that Christ operated out of in his humanity. Was he able to take care of every need? No. But he ultimately took care of our greatest need. I'd ask you to bow your heads with me. Just listen to these next words. What is a person's greatest need? We have many, don't we? There's physical needs, emotional, relational, financial. But at rock bottom, the greatest need of every human being, all 7.5 billion human beings on this earth, is to be in a right relationship with God. Maybe this morning that that thought resonates with your heart. You are here at church because you're thinking about your relationship with God. You are wondering, how can I know him? You're saying to yourself, yes, I have problems, but this seems to be the, the paramount problem. If God is what we're, we're talking about this morning, what we've sung about, if he's infinite in magnitude, if he's all wise and all powerful, then I've got to know him. I've got to be in right relationship with him. Listen, I don't have many things that I can give you. I'm not a rich man. But I do offer you something priceless. It's called the good news. The gospel of Jesus. God knows that there is sin in your heart. He is a perfect God. He has never once so much as considered doing something wrong. And his Bible says that he will not associate with sinfulness, even uh, those sins that we believe that are just minute in nature. Well, in his eyes, they're not minute. And if we were taking a real inventory of our heart, we would realize that it is a much bigger pattern and problem in our life. That's why God has felt distant. Your sin separates you from him. However, God sent his son Jesus because he looked on the state of the world and he took compassion on it. There's a beautiful little verse in the Gospel of John, simple but profound, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, the son of God, the apple of the father's eye, that which was closest to his heart, he gave for you. Think about that on Father's Day. How precious your children are to you. 
in Jesus, the Son of God willingly laid down his life on the cross. The Bible says he bore our sins on his body on the cross. This is your greatest need. And Jesus took care of that need on the cross and he offers you a right relationship with God today. How do you access this relationship with God? The Bible is very clear. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How do you call on the name of the Lord? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Would you like to respond to Jesus this morning? If so, it just comes by faith. Simply saying in your heart right now, Jesus, in the best way I know how, I trust you for my salvation. If you've done that this morning, I would love to pray for you. I would love to pray for you. If you just simply slip up your hand, I'll pray for you this morning. Anyone at all, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, I'd love to pray for you. Thank you back there. Anybody else? Thank you back there. Anyone else? Have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? Thank you. Thank you. I see you. I see you. Shall we pray? Father, 